Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. I'm going to try to do something here this morning. Well, a little different, actually probably a lot uh, different than I would usually do, maybe more overt preaching, teaching than, than preaching, but it's related to where we have been in Romans chapter 8. And I don't know if this is going to work. I know that's pretty small for a building the size, but what I'm hoping, kind of springing this on the tech team, is it possible to zoom the camera in on that later when I start writing on that and get that thrown up on the screen? We're going to test their skills here. If not, you can just come and look at it after, after service. In Romans chapter 8, if you have your Bibles, would you please just turn there? The last time that we... We're in Romans 8, a few weeks back. We've been working through verses 18 to 25 of the 8th chapter. And we basically concluded that section, that unit of thought in Romans 8, 18 to 25. But there's another question I believe that kind of rises up based upon the discussion, the exposition of the text. I'm going to just read those verses uh, for you, and then I'll introduce it, and then we'll jump in to the question I want to try to answer this morning. So Romans chapter 8, 18 to 25. Uh, you know, you've been seated for a while. I'm just going to ask you to stand in honor to the Word of God as I read this passage Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until thou, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Thank you. You may be seated. So in this passage, Paul is preparing and equipping his readers, that includes us, on how to navigate suffering in the Christian life. 
And the way that he gives us to remain strong and steadfast and unwavering in the midst of difficult circumstances is that we need to understand the reality of the hope that is ours in Christ. Particularly the truth about what is coming. And so we have looked at that several weeks walking through this section about what's coming for us and what's coming for this created order. But here's the question uh, that that can raise as we begin to talk about that future day, and that is this, when is that day going to happen? When is that day coming? I don't mean specifically, but when is it going to be? What are the events leading up to that, encompassed in that great final climactic set of scenes from history? And so it just struck me going through this that it might be good just as a summary or a wrap-up of this unit of thought to just try to give an overview of Orthodox Christianity and what the main tenets of beliefs are related to what in theological terms is called eschatology. Now that's a that's a big word you probably don't use but once or twice a week, right? It's a, a word that simply means this, the study of last things. The study of last things. So what I want to do is I want to just take you into a brief study this morning of last things. And as we begin that, I'm going to break that up into kind of two main areas. One is just going to be a brief statement, but eschatology can be kind of compartmentalized into two categories, if you will. One would be personal eschatology, like what is the reality of the last things for me? my life? What's going to happen to me at death and after death? And then the second category, the one that we're going to really focus on is general or global eschatology. What is going to take place in those culminating moments of history? So first of all, let me just touch on one idea here about personal eschatology that I believe will be encouraging, hopefully encouraging. It encourages me, particularly if you've had loved ones, believers that have passed away that you miss. So first of all, under personal eschatology, there is the moment when we come to physical death, 
But then what happens after that death? I'm talking about those that live and die before the return of Christ. That's everybody that has lived and died to this point in history. What happens to them as a believer at death? It says in 2 Corinthians 5.4, let me just read some verses here from 2 Corinthians. Paul is writing, and he's writing about this end-time idea about a personal end. And he says, for while we are still in this tent talking about this body, this physical body, we groan. That sounds a little bit like Romans 8, about the groaning of creation and the groaning of the children of God longing for what is to come. While we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Being burdened with what? Being burdened with a mortal body. A body that is prone to sin that is not yet fully redeemed from sin, this mortal body that we still carry. We're being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. So let me just try to explain what he is saying here quickly. The we is referring to all Christians. And he says that in this life we groan. Why? Because we're burdened, burdened with this living tent, this mortal body. So what is his desire? Does Paul simply want to be rid of this mortal body that has a propensity to sin? No, that's not what he says here. His desire is not to be unclothed, but to be what? But to be further clothed. And he says that that happens when this mortal body is swallowed up by life. So here's the cliff notes on that. Paul is saying, I'm longing for the day when I am no longer burdened by this mortal physical body. Not that I just want to get rid of it. I want something greater. I want to be clothed with the reality of what is coming. It's the same author that wrote Romans chapter 8. He's looking for the day of the redemption of his mortal body into a glorious, immortal, incorruptible body. Then he continues in verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Two things I want to point out there. First, to be at home in the body is to be away from the Lord. 
I mean, he says that right there. I don't mean the presence of Christ is not with us, but he's talking about being directly and literally with Christ in his visible presence. And he says, while I am in this earthly body, what that means for me is to be absent from that reality, to be absent from the Lord. And then he says, the other side of that equation, to be away from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's a great hope there. If you've had a believer that has died, a loved one in the Lord that has died, listen carefully to this. To be away from the body, to be, quote, unclothed when this mortal shell is laid aside in death, what happens to the believer is that they immediately go to be with the Lord. Though their body is no longer alive, though they separate from that for a period of time, they are eternal souls and their soul, which is them, a more real part of them than their physical body, goes directly to be with the Lord. Now finally, notice Paul's opinion or his preference Related to these three conditions. One, to be living in this tent, in this mortal body. Two, to be unclothed with it, following death. And three, to be further clothed with the redeemed, glorified body. What is his order of preference of those three? It's this. His number one, obviously, is to be further clothed. He's looking for the day of redemption when his body is transformed, when he is made glorious like the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if that does not happen or before that happens, his second preference would be to be away from the body, to be unclothed, because when that happens, he's in the presence of the Lord. In fact, Listen to Philippians 1, 21 and 23. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. My desire is to part and to be with Christ for that is better by far. Paul is saying, I would much rather, I don't, it's not that I want to be unclothed, but if I have the choices to pick from here, my last choice is to be in this mortal body here on this earth. My ultimate choice is to be clothed, further clothed with my redemption body. But, Better than this body on this earth, better by far, is to be unclothed and to be with the Lord in His presence. So believers who die before Christ returns, they enter into a state in which they are existing, they are a soul without a body, but they are in the presence of the Lord. And that is where they remain until the consummation of their redemption. I hope that encourages you. I've had people ask me that question, trying to sort that out. How do you work this out? 
thousand years between my death and the return of Christ? What am I doing? I mean, am I comatose? Am I in limbo? I don't believe you're comatose or in lingo, limbo. I believe that you are in the conscience presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are without a body, but your soul is there with Christ. You are aware of being there with Christ, better by far than this situation in this mortal body. Now, let's move to general eschatology or the global understanding of last things. And what I want to try to do, this is probably going to be pretty dangerous because I am not very good at writing and I'm going to try to sketch this for you and I'll try to talk through it as I do that. So there are basically three views. I'm going to make this, I'm simplifying this pretty drastically simplifying uh, three various views of Orthodox Christian understanding of the end times. I'm going to just kind of set this up here. On one side of the board here is the first coming of Christ, and on the other side is eternity. So the question is, what is happening in this age right now between the first coming of Christ and the consummation of history, the conclusion of this redemptive process, that this is called the last days? Do you know that from Scripture? There is this age and then the age to come. This age is the church age. It's referred to in Scripture as the last days. So that there is something taking place in these days that's going to consummate in eternity. And in that kind of paradigm, there's three basic views of Christian understanding about what happens in the last days. I'm just going to try to show them to you. The first one is called pre, I'm just going to abbreviate that, premillennialism. Premillennialism. All of these diverge based around an understanding of what is called the millennium. That's where they kind of separate in understanding. And the premillennial position believes that Christ is going to return. Try to draw that on here. This is the second coming. This is kind of divided into two sections. That Christ is going to return, he's going to return 
once in a second coming, but he's not coming all the way to the earth. He's going to descend and he is going to gather out of the earth his people and then there is going to issue a great tribulation. So he's going to take his church out before this great tribulation and then at the end of that tribulation, he's going to come back again this time to the earth with his church and what's going to happen is that he is going to set up his kingdom his millennial kingdom here on earth. This millennial kingdom refers to a thousand year reign of Christ, not necessarily exactly a thousand years, but this extended period of time in which Christ reigns. And then that concludes with the last judgment. and enters into eternity. So that's the premillennial view of in orthodox Christianity. So Christ comes back some point in the future, takes his church out of the out of the world, a great tribulation ensues, he comes back a second time with his church, binds Satan sets up a millennial kingdom where he rules here on earth and there's a time of great prosperity and peace and then at the end of that, Satan is released from where he has been bound to start a final rebellion and Christ concludes that by winning the victory and bringing ultimate judgment of the enemy and his forces and those who have not accepted him and eternity begins. Here's the second view. It's post-millennialism. And what post-millennialism says is that what's going to happen is that there's going to be at some point in the future this millennial kingdom just like was stated here but the distinctives of it is that that's going to be ushered in by the gospel preaching going forth and becoming so powerful in history that eventually it covers the globe. That it so infects every geography, every aspect of humanity that it brings into play a golden age where the brotherhood of man is vibrant, where government is established on Christian principles, where families are in health, just prosperity takes place. It's this, it's this golden age, and it comes about by the preaching over time of the gospel so that it so saturates, not that every individual is saved, but that it becomes so widespread that it characterizes all of human history. And that when that happens, when we have arrived at the beginning of that golden age, that is when they believe the millennium begins. And it's not 
that Christ comes literally to the earth to reign, but that his influence here is so pervasive through the Christian message that in a sense he is reigning here over the earth. And then that is consummated by the second coming of Christ right here. And then the last judgment. Final view is amillennialism. Now, there are variations to these, but I'm just kind of giving you a, a broad sketch of them. Amillennialism says one of two things. It says that the millennium is symbolic. It's not a thousand-year uh, literal reign that that's symbolic language given in a symbolic book of the Bible, Revelation, and that what is taking place right now on this earth is that the kingdom of God is growing and expanding as individuals are getting saved and they begin to live for him. The kingdom of God is growing and expanding in them and through their influence. And at the same time, evil is growing and expanding. So that throughout this age, there is both of these taking place that the kingdom of God is growing, but at the same time, evil is getting worse and more rampant, and that will come all the way up to the end where there will be a second coming of Christ and the last judgment. So what the amillennials believe is that this second coming is all sequential events that happen like rap rapidly. Christ returns, he wins the battle, he hands out his judgment, and he condemns unbelievers and rebels to hell, and he takes his followers to heaven, and eternity begins. So, premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial. Now, that basic overview in mind, I want to just say there has and is great godly people, scholars, theologians that line up with every different theory here. It is, someone I think said it like this, the millennium is the story of a thousand years of peace that Christians have been arguing about for 2,000 years. <laughs> and that's true. That's true. Premillennium in American culture right now is the predominant view right here. Anybody think of a series of books that really have helped to make this kind of on the forefront? What are they? The Left Behind series based upon this view. Uh, Post-millennialism, just give you one name. If you know anything about church history, this will carry some serious weight. Jonathan Edwards was a post-millennialist. He was the greatest theologian of American history, I would say without question. Amillennialism is, I think, the greatest expositor of the book of Romans 
Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was an amillennialist. So there's godly people in all of those. And I think it's good to study that. I think it is helpful. Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. There's a promise in Revelations that says, when you study and obey the things of that book, you are blessed. These are subject matters that are in there. So I think it is important that we are seeking to know and to understand the truth about these great events. But what, maybe, maybe what I'd like to just point out to you overall related to this I wished I could do the whole of human history. If I could extend this out here, because here is the first coming of Christ, and it is a division in history. Pre-Christ advent, I mean, what changed that we use all the time because of the coming of Christ? A- dates, A.D. and B.C. Now, that's not the essence of what changed, but it was such a radical moment in history that it divides history. If you could take this back further, what you start with is a perfect creation. And that perfect creation falls in sin. And at that climactic moment, at that, to that point, the most critical moment in history, do you know what is given? There is a promise in Genesis 3.15 that says, the Savior's coming. The Savior's coming. So the inauguration of that first chasm in history is proclaimed as a central reality that the Savior, we don't know his name yet, but the Savior is coming. And that promise is the focal point of the entire Old Testament that takes it all the way to the end of the Old Testament until Christ comes and there's this division again in history where the significant actor and author, the central theme is Jesus Christ. And from that first coming enters into the church age in which we are looking for what? We're looking for the second coming of Christ that is going to be the last dividing line of human history. So the central point of all that is this. Jesus is the central point. Jesus is the central point. He is the great theme. It is all about him. He is to be the focus Everything in human history and structure from the viewpoint of God is related to Jesus Christ and the part he's going to play, he did play, he is going to play. It's really a story of Christ who is the creator. So, if we can just make that emphasis, we talk up. I try to find ways all the time to emphasize the centrality of the person of Christ. It's a great way to do that, just understanding those main acts of human history and how they all are related to Christ and who he is and what he's doing. What I want to do now, and I, 
I'm, I'm supposing you want to know where I'm at here, right? <laughs> I actually missed something here. Just to kind of show the first coming, kind of here's the dividing point, the cross, and that point forward. The, the one that I have the most struggle with is post-millennialism. The hardest uh, that I see lining up with the biblical narrative is this here, and here's primarily why. I can't find in the unfolding narrative of Scripture that the gospel goes out so influentially that it basically converts almost all of humanity so that on this earth we are living in this utopian golden age. What I see in Scripture is that the gospel does progress and that evil progresses, that things heat up toward the end. So I, I struggle with the concept of postmillennialism basically because of that. So the two that I think have some good merit scripturally are premillennial and amillennial and with some difficult points in each that I have not worked out in my own mind. So there you go. I kind of gave you part of an answer. <clears throat> but we shouldn't have to divide over that. There is not going to be anybody checking your millennial stamp at the gates of heaven for you to get in. It's not what th- that's not what's going to happen. I think we can sharpen one another. I think it's healthy to have good discussion about that and embrace each other at the end of that and go back to the Word of God and see if we are grounded in the truth. What I want to do now as I just wrap this up is I want to kind of divert from this now and say, okay, there's some pretty significant disagreements in the Orthodox Christian faith related to the events right at the end of history, but there are some, there are some far more incredible agreements across Christianity. I want to call them axioms of the end. Axioms of the end. What I mean by axiom is just a set of truths that is almost certain. I'm not saying that every single believer would agree with them, but across the board, they are embraced in mass in Orthodox Christianity. So I just want to state what those are as a conclusion of this section in Romans chapter 8. So these truths regarding the final days are far more undeniable than they are disputable. Far more undeniable than they are disputable. Here's one. We've already hit this in the past, but what we talked about in personal eschatology brings it up. Jesus, Jesus will return in all-conquering power and judgment. Every single belief, every single doctrine believes that. Second coming, second coming, second coming. The church 
holds on to the hope, the certain hope of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that second coming is going to initiate the events that culminate human history and bring us into eternity. Whether it happens right at the end before the culmination or sometime previous to that before a millennium. But the point is Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back in all conquering power. Revelation 20, 11 and 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus is returning as an all-conquering king and he is going to judge his enemies and those who have rebelled and rejected him. That is an axiom of the end. Secondly, followers of Jesus Christ will receive Christ-like glorified incorruptible bodies. Followers of Jesus Christ will receive Christ-like glorified incorruptible bodies. We will enjoy expanded capacities and senses, maximized faculties with which to enjoy the new existence that we're going to have in glory throughout eternity. Number three, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. That's not referring to annihilation, to a complete non-existence of the present universe. It is a remaking of the heavens and the earth. It is God restoring and remaking, redeeming what has been broken. Just in the same way that this body right here that I have, this mortal body, it is going to be this body that is resurrected. Folks, whether or not I'm put in the grave and I'm there a thousand years or ten minutes, it's going to be this body. Whether or not I am burned, whether or not I am thrown over into the sea and devoured by the creatures of the deep, 
It's going to be the properties of this body that is going to be resurrected. God can and will do that. That is not a challenge for him. And so what he's going to do is he's going to take this body that is corrupted and he is going to prove his glory and power by transforming it into an immortal, incorruptible, glorified body. He's going to do that with the earth, with the universe that has been destroyed and marred by the fall. This creation that is groaning and longing for the day of the believer's redemption of their bodies because in that moment, Romans chapter 8, I believe it's verse 22 or 23, because when that happens to the believers, it's going to also happen to the universe, to the created order. So that the heavens and the earth are going to be made new. So here's a question that could be raised. What then do we do with heaven? What then do we do with heaven? See, many followers of Christ view heaven as something non-earthly, completely separated from this earth. I think a better way to view that can be taken from Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. I think this... The picture here is of this new heaven coming down to a new earth and the two becoming one. And in that new heaven and earth, in our new glorified and corruptible Christ-like bodies, we will dwell in that existence forever. So here's the conclusion. What then must we do? How should that affect our lives? The reality of the truth of what is to come. First John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. And here is the now what? And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You see, the brighter that your hope is of what is coming, the more that you understand it, the more motivational it's going to be in your life to practice personal purity, to pursue your personal sanctification because everyone who has that hope in them purifies themselves as he is pure. He's coming. We want to be like him, so we are striving here on this earth with that fixed view of what is to come, doing our best to move toward aligning our lives with it right now. Number two, not only we are to strive to live pure, we're to pray for Christ's coming. 
Revelation 22:20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That is a prayer right there. Jesus, come. Jesus, come. Someone told me once, kind of as an insult, I was too heavenly minded to be any good down here. Man, I could read Paul. He was so focused on what was to come, like a face face set like a flint toward it. It helped him get up every morning and take a step forward for the gospel because he kept his eyes fixed. He was looking for Jesus' return, I believe, every moment. That leads us to the third thing that we should be doing. We should be watching for Christ's coming. Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's that groaning, that picture that Paul was painting in Romans 8 about standing on tiptoes, just looking and longing for the moment when we see him breaking over the horizon. It's what our heart is to be like related to the return of Christ. I mean, not looking at the I'm not saying this is bad, but the focus in looking at the events of concluding history is not to just know about, you know, what, what is going to happen in the Middle East and who's going to bomb who and is there going to be a preemptive strike against who, by whom. No, the focus is Jesus coming back. That is to be the emphasis. That's to be the longing in the heart. I believe clearly that's the biblical writer's focal point. It's straining to see the coming of the Lord, praying to see the coming of the Lord and living as if he were coming soon. Would you stand? Father, I know that's a, A lot of information, technical stuff there, download, but I I just have a sense that of standing before you and giving an account of my life and one of the great Countings that I'm going to have to give is, did you proclaim my word? I mean, not just the parts that were simple and clear, but did you work through the weighty things as well? Helping to demonstrate that man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So I just pray that you would you just encourage believers in this room with the truth of the hope that is theirs, with the truth of those that have died that we have loved in the Lord. And Lord, supposed to be motivated to pursue righteousness, purity as we fix our eyes on the coming 
of you into the world again. In Christ's name I pray, amen.